You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ovation Fertility, a leader in the field of IVF lab services. Ovation partners with some of America's leading fertility specialists to provide a range of services to support fertility treatment, including fertility testing, IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, genetic testing, and long-term storage of reproductive material. You can learn more about Ovation at OvationFertility.com. Hello, all of my lovely peoples listening to us on another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my two most marvelous, magnificent ladies who are my partners, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello, hello. So in the perhaps two seconds prior to starting this, I was like belting out, I've got the power, power, because that's what I like. I'm the one who controls who starts the recording for the episode. And that is what I sing in my head every single time that I click over. You have that, you have that part going in your head too. Obviously. What do you take me for? I have a full soundtrack going in my head every time I hit that button. So what have you guys been up to? What's new? I'm cleaning. Spring is in the air. I'm sorting. I'm I'm in that purge mode where I'm like, I need to get rid of things. Mm-hmm. Want to come over to my house? I love cleaning other people's stuff so much more than cleaning my own. That's so much more fun. <laughs> we can trade houses. I am really good at throwing other people's stuff away. It's so much better. You take out the emotional part and it's just like gone. You know, it's interesting. I've never read Marie. Is it Marie Condit? That's the organizer of Clutter Declutter. But I'm actually listening to a book, an audio book right now that's called Things Are Not People. And it's all about a woman that helps a hoarder kind of like declutter her house and just how challenging it is. You know, I struggle with that because I'm like, with clothes, I'm like, well, I don't really wear that that much. But you know, that one time I wore it on New Year's Eve, it was so cute. And I really liked it. And I, I might, there might be another New Year's Eve in the next decade that I might wear it again. <laughs> you know? You've read of something that you hadn't worn in a decade. And then like two weeks later, you're like, oh, that would have been just the perfect thing. But you know what? <laughs> that is an opportunity to get something new. And it's okay. That's true. And I've heard people like if they're trying with clothes, if they're trying to get rid of them, if they buy something, they'll make themselves give something away. I wish I could do that. I just can't. But that's a great idea for anybody listening that can do that. (laughs) I have this huge pile of clothes that needs to get donated and it's all pretty professional wear and it's in decent condition. It just, it no longer fits. And so trying to find the right place to give it so that it's not just ending up in a heap somewhere. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the stuff that is no longer of use to me could very easily be of use to someone. And I don't want it to just end up in a landfill somewhere, but it's also finding where do I send it? What kind of prep do I have to do ahead of it? Like, especially with the clothes, some of these places want you to clean them, dry clean them, put them on hangers, make sure they're ironed and make sure it's really nice. And I don't really have that kind of time. I donate a lot of our stuff. We have community and schools where they have a resale shop. And so that's where I donate a lot of my stuff. 
recently. I kind of have hopped from place to place, depending on honestly, some of it is that convenience factor because like there was one place that I used to donate, but I could only donate at certain times. And I'm like, if it actually can manage to get in my car for me to drive it from my house to somewhere else, like it needs to go there like ASAP. Otherwise it gets stuck in my car for a month. Only a month. I mean, I have driven around bags of clothing (laughs) for a year before usually in my husband's car, not necessarily mine because I mine, I've got, you know, an SUV so I can see and hear the stuff cluttering back there, but it goes into his trunk and it's a black hole. It's just as good as being gone. I mean, it is just as good as gone. Cause I don't have to look at it, but I've occasionally stumbled across stuff that I'm like, this was here six months ago because that's when I cleaned that closet. And so All right. So spring cleaning aside, what kind of questions do we have today? Because we're going to do a question episode and go through a bunch of the things that are on top of our listeners' minds and find out how we can help them. Absolutely. All right. So our first one is this. Hello, I am a 27-year-old female. I've been trying to conceive for almost two years. After two OBs and two REs, I finally received a diagnosis and was just cleared to start trying to conceive in 2022. I was diagnosed with chronic endometritis and elevated prolactin this last fall. I've since been prescribed medications that have brought my prolactin levels to normal and eliminated the chronic endometritis. However, I'm wondering, can chronic endometritis come back? And if so, how would you know? I was advised by my RE that they don't exactly know what causes it, but that elevated prolactin can be a contributing factor. And my only previous symptoms were recurring miscarriages. Thanks so much for all that y'all do. It has been so helpful to listen to y'all throughout this journey. I've learned so much. This lady has a special place in my heart because she writes y'all as much as I do. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think in Texas you said y'all that much. Oh, we totally say y'all. Okay. Carrie, you do say y'all? You don't say y'all out in Las Vegas, do you? Not in Vegas, but I trained in Atlanta at Emory. And so y'all and all y'all are phrases. (laughs) Yeah. So knowing when chronic endometritis comes back. So yes, it can come back. No, we don't really know what causes it. The treatment's fairly simple with antibiotics. If you respond to the basic antibiotics, which doxy is usually first line, the only way to really know is to go back in and take another look, do another biopsy, which is expensive, painful, or both, depending on what you do. And so there's not really a good answer to that. I mean, like if you are doing X number of cycles of IUI or you're doing an embryo transfer, I would say the best way to know that you're good is to right before your transfer, go and look. And if you see something, treat, hold off a month and then go straight into it. That's not necessarily a functional thing when you're trying to get pregnant on your own, which in this case, because she's young and she has an elevated prolactin that's been brought down by meds and she's got chronic endometritis that's been treated, she may not be going into one of these really definitive timeline kinds of treatments. And so that leaves you in uh, well, what do we think we want to do? Like, do we want to just check again in six months if you're not pregnant? I was kind of thinking that too. I mean, there's no real true protocol, but I was thinking, well, you know, maybe you just have another biopsy done in six months or hysteroscopy or something and then go from there. And, you know, I would say, I don't know what you guys are saying, but if it's clear again in six months, I would kind of think the chances of it reoccurring are pretty low. I mean, there's germs in the vagina that in some way, sometimes can get up into the uterus, I guess. And that's why you have chronic endometritis. But if it's been knocked out once, I think it's probably a low chance that you would get it again. And if you had a repeat biopsy or hysteroscopy or something six months later and you didn't have it, I don't know that I'd keep checking over and over and over for it again. 
I wasn't really familiar with the link between hyperprolactinemia and chronic endometritis. Are you guys? No, the only link I could think of that maybe her doctor was talking about both of those things may impair implantation. Because, you know, we think, you know, certainly women that are breastfeeding that have high levels of prolactin, certainly every now and then people can get pregnant in that situation. But I know for most of our fertility patients, if somebody's going to go into like a frozen embryo transfer cycle, for example, and they're breastfeeding, we usually recommend that they stop doing that before they have a transfer. We think it may have some impact on implantation. So I would put those in the basket of, I don't think they're linked together, but I think they both could impair implantation. And that's sort of the connection I can see. I can buy that. All right. All ready for the next one? Let's do it. All right. Hello. I am 38 years old with unexplained infertility. I have an AMH of 4.53. Last year, I had a hysteroscopy and two small polyps removed. I recently underwent my first IVF cycle with 18 eggs retrieved, 15 fertilized, 11 blasts, and four came back PGT normal. That is a kick-ass cycle. Um, (laughs) I would agree. I would agree. Unfortunately, my first FET failed. My protocol included letrozole, gonal F, 50 IU and trigger with Avidrol on cycle day 11. My lining only made it to about 7 to 7.2. Progesterone suppositories, 200 milligrams once a day, were started three days after trigger. Embryo transfer was seven days after trigger. I unfortunately started spotting seven days later and had full flow by nine days after transfer. Since then, I had an endometrial biopsy, which revealed chronic endometritis. Wow, it's a theme today. It's a theme. I am on a two-week course of doxy and metronidazole. My doctor does not think I need a repeat biopsy before the next transfer. I'm concerned because I've read that sometimes it requires two to three rounds of antibiotics to clear up endometritis. I've also read about many women taking progesterone three times a day. So should I be concerned that I'm not getting enough to support a pregnancy? Would that fact that I'm spotting essentially 11 days into the two-week wait be indicative of low progesterone or a problem with the timing of the transfer? I would do a test to cure. Yeah, I would repeat just because there's so much riding on it, I would do a test of cure too. And did she say she wasn't, she didn't get progesterone in her luteal cycle? It was 200 milligrams once a day. But this was after a trigger. So it sounded like she had a follicle and so she had a natural cycle. So she probably didn't need a lot of progesterone. Yeah. I like program cycles. Yeah, I like program cycles. And I like to give progesterone because to use Carrie's phrase, it's like dumping water in the ocean. You know, you can't get too much of it. So I I like progesterone just because we don't have to worry about it. So I would probably have given her more even with a cycle where she ovulated. Yeah, it's hard to go wrong with too much. I mean, yes, it's an obnoxious kind of obnoxious medication to take, whether it's vaginally or I am. But hey, if you hit your goal, then nobody remembers that discomfort. Yeah. All right, let's get to our next one. Hi, first, I'd like to thank you for your podcast. It's been amazing to listen to. I apologize for the long message. I'm 32, husband and I have been trying for two and a half years. I've had one miscarriage at eight to 10 weeks in 2017 when she had an IUD and three chemical pregnancies since they started trying. No successful pregnancies. Blood work and HSG in 2020 came back normal. AMH 9.44, FSH 6.8, prolactin normal, TSH normal, HSG normal. Unfortunately, due to COVID, everything else was put on hold until June 2021. Husband's semen analysis is normal. They've done five IUI cycles, two with no meds, one with letrozole, two with Clomid. They did one cycle on their own with Clomid 
as she ovulated in Thanksgiving and couldn't do the IUI. Next cycle started two weeks early and the home ovulation test never showed a peak. I am now 10 days past the usual start of my cycle. I had a pelvic ultrasound a few days ago, which showed a three centimeter cyst on my left ovary and the ovary itself was enlarged with free fluid around both ovaries. My last IUI is put on hold again. We've been considering IVF, but due to cost, we haven't been sure if we should go down that route. Can you give your advice on if we should go towards the last IUI once the cyst is resolved, continue trying to on your own, or if we should just go forward with IVF? Thank you again. That's such a great question. We have a whole episode on that that we just taped. <laughs> so I would not continue trying on your own. I mm-hmm. think you have given that the legit try. You have done well. Let's move on. With respect to another IUI versus IVF, I doubt that that's going to be a game changer in one direction or the other. So think about the worst case scenario in both conditions. If you try an IUI and you don't get pregnant and you have a cyst and it delays you start an IVF by a couple months, are you going to be more angry at that? Or are you going to be more angry if you just jump straight into IVF? And if it works, obviously you're not going to be angry, but if it doesn't work, you mean like, Oh, we should have tried that one more cycle. Like where, where are you? You know, if you get delayed because of doing an IUI, how cranky are you going to be about it? That's not going to make or break a decision one way or the other. Like, I I think this is putting a ton of emphasis on doing one more IUI cycle or not. It's probably not going to hurt. I have real suspicions. It may not help. If it makes you feel better to try, then by all means do it. But it's also not wrong to go straight to IVF at this point too. Yeah. Cause I just think about the emotional toil on you and your husband just going through this and not to mention the financial part of it. And, you know, I think to me, that's a legit reason to move on sooner rather than later because you have a much better chance with IVF. Yeah. All right. Thoughts on progesterone levels in supplementation. I have a history of ectopic one tube then removed in two miscarriages, three months apart. Last one was now four months ago. I am 27 and been trying to conceive for a year and a half. My progesterone level was 7.8 when last taken cycle day 23 and my doc won't supplement me. I'm in a rural area, so have only been seen by my OB-GYN, wondering what next steps I should be taking and when I feel pretty lost in the process and don't know where to start. Well, as I said before, I'm a big advocate of Prometrium progesterone. I don't think it hurts anything. So yes, I would probably supplement you. I'm not saying that's the only answer, but I would shoot more for a number over 10 on day 23. And, you know, it's hard to know if that's played a role with your miscarriages or not, but that just kind of takes it off the table if you're supplementing. I would actually supplement her regardless of what the number is. So first of all, progesterone levels go up and down many times a day. And so... To me, a progesterone level says you ovulated or you didn't ovulate. It doesn't really tell me if it's good or bad. And so with your history of miscarriage, I would supplement you because I'm probably not going to hurt anything and I could help. But after two miscarriages, I would definitely recommend a recurrent pregnancy loss evaluation, including a karyotype on both of you thyroid hormones for you, prolactin level for you, antiphospholipid antibody testing. And even though you're in a remote area, especially in this day where telemedicine has become more and more prevalent, you can get an appointment with an RE like somewhere in your region, even if it's two or three hours away. And oftentimes they can work in conjunction with your OB-GYN if you need to have monitoring or something like that. I mean, you're probably going to have to do a little bit of traveling, but it's probably not nearly as 
burdensome as it would have even been a few years ago. I will say just idle supplementation with progesterone can be functionally difficult to do without a positive pregnancy test. And what I mean by that is that I've definitely had patients who we want to give progesterone and we say, okay, you know, once you get your positive ovulation predictor kit, a couple of days later, start your progesterone. But the problem is they don't know when to stop it. And so it ends up being one of two things. Either they continue it forever and ever on Amen, at which point it turns into birth control because you have to stop the progesterone because if you keep going on it, it will prevent your next ovulation. The other thing is that sometimes it really throws their cycle. And so it's not a bad thing. It's part intention of it in stabilizing things, but it can make it difficult to do for short periods of time like you're thinking. So a lot of times what I'll tell people is, yeah, the second you get a positive pregnancy test, you start taking that progesterone and that allows you to get the benefit of the supplementation, but not throwing your cycle so much that actually conceiving becomes more challenging to do. Absolutely. So kind of changing tax, our next question is why would an embryologist not select a hatching embryo to use for FET? Oh, that's an interesting question. That is a different category. What do you think, Abby? Well, I'm told, I'm not an embryologist, but I'm told that hatching embryos are a little bit more delicate than embryos that are not hatching because they're already like broken out of their shell and look, they're looking for a place to implant. And so we worry a little bit, and, and I think the data kind of shows this, that sometimes hatching embryos may not be quite as successful as embryos that are not hatching, like ones that are expanded to five versus six is the hatching with our staging system. And so, you know, you just with those hatching embryos, certainly when we're doing embryo transfer, we try and be really delicate no matter what, but really delicately try and release those embryos because you worry a little bit. If they don't have that protective shell, they just may not implant quite as well. You know, not knowing any of the other specifics, there may be lots of other reasons why they might not have picked that embryo. But just as a general rule, I think our embryologists tend to pick more embryos just before hatching if they can, if they have a choice. Yeah, I think it's probably not a situation that they won't choose it. It's just maybe not their first choice. Yeah, right. And it, it's still a great embryo. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we we transfer a lot. That being said, we transfer a lot of hatching embryos. But I think if you have a choice, they probably the embryologist would choose. That's a good question for an embryologist, but probably choose one that's non-hatching. I see Carrie wanting to make a comment about some study they've done at Las Vegas. <laughs> Go, Carrie. Well, it's not just whether it's hatching or not. It's do they have an inner cell mass? Do they have a trophectoderm? Because you can have a hatching embryo that doesn't really have much of an inner cell mass. And if an embryologist is looking at one that's not hatched, but that has a beautiful troph and beautiful ICM versus one that is hatched, that's kind of crummy on both counts. Like the one that's not hatched is the better embryo. So that's, they're going to choose that because the, I mean, I think most docs leave our embryo choice up to the, the embryologist, because they're the ones who are staring at them day in and day out. Yeah. And they watch the pregnancy rates just like we do. And so, cause they have their own bets going of, is this one going to make it or is it not? And so they're tracking it too. So if they choose one, there's a reason for it. And sometimes it's the reasoning of experience of this one just looks better to me or they can't necessarily put descriptive words to it, but they're like, no, no, we're use that one. We want that one. The thing that always cracks me up with the embryologist is sometimes I'll ask that question. I'll be like, well, why did you choose this one versus this one? Oh, well, if you look at it, the it's got, you know, and I forgot they're like, this has got vacuoles and this has, they they can see all this stuff in the embryo that I are, that I'm like, oh, okay, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Whatever you say, if you think this is the prettier one, we'll choose that one. This will be an interesting conversation to have in a few more years to see where AI takes us. 
yeah, artificial intelligence. That's that's the kind of things it's going to look at and really determine whether or not it really makes a difference in terms of choice. Yeah, that's that'll be interesting. All right. So our next one is, hello, thank you so much for the podcast. I've learned so much and look forward to it each week. My question is about the impact of TPO antibodies on fertility and pregnancy outcomes. I've been told that as long as I take my levothyroxine and keep my TSH under two, the antibodies should not have an effect on my trying to conceive journey. I have done this and all tests for me and my husband are normal, yet still no pregnancy. We did have one very early miscarriage. Can TPO antibodies make getting pregnant more difficult or cause miscarriages? If so, what can I do to lower these antibodies? I can't find much on this topic. My antibodies are currently at 241. I'd love to better understand this piece of the thyroid puzzle. So TPO antibodies by themselves in the setting of a normal free T4 and TSH probably don't have a huge impact on fertility. You know, most of us, I think, shoot for a TSH that's 2.5 or less. And your antibody levels are going to go up and go down. To my knowledge, that doesn't necessarily correspond with your thyroid supplementation because that is a, it's a separate process that is independent of that. And so what I typically tell my patients who have TPO antibodies in the setting of normal everything else is this is more related to just general thyroid function. Keep an eye on it. You are more prone to having thyroid issues, not necessarily in pregnancy, but postpartum for sure. And in future years. So make sure your primary care doc knows that you have this because you're going to be someone who they want to follow for that. So that if, and when your thyroid does go a little haywire, you can catch it sooner rather than later, rather than suffering from some of those obnoxious symptoms for longer than you need to. As far as its impact on fertility in general, it's a little bit of a black box. And I would go so far to say that with recurrent pregnancy loss, there is a correlation between increased thyroid prostate antibodies and miscarriage, but not necessarily causation. It's hard to put the pieces together and figure out if it's cause and effect or if they just happen to be more prevalent in people with miscarriages. So, but the problem is, like Carrie said, there's nothing you can do about them. And we do want to control, you know, certainly if your TSH is over, you know, 2.5, 2.5, we certainly want to get you on Synthroid. But if you just have antibodies in and of themselves, I don't know if people would routinely put you on Synthroid for that if your TSH was within the range we wanted. But certainly somebody would need to keep an eye on you because that suggests that your thyroid is under siege and at some point um, it's not going to be working the way we want it to. As the local autoimmune person, as that I have lots of autoimmune diseases, <laughs> not necessarily an expert thereof. If you have one autoimmune condition, which having antithyroid antibodies is, that that means you are more likely to have other autoimmune conditions. So it's more that we need to have like our sensors on to watch for things that are a little funky than necessarily that's the problem itself. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Next question is, hello, docs. After having four miscarriages, she had an evaluation and was found to have a translocation. After six IVF cycles with PGS testing, they now have three healthy kiddos, four-year-old twins and a nine-month-old, and one little embryo left that was inconclusive, but then retested as viable. We are transferring this one soon. This is our last effort for a pregnancy. I want to make sure I'm doing everything I can to get the best lining for a successful transfer. I'm going to acupuncture three times a week. I'm eating right. I'm on a warm foods diet. I'm doing everything my fertility doctor recommends and my acupuncturist recommends, but is there more? Could I be doing something different to help? We would love to know your collective thoughts. Thanks in advance. 
Well, estrogen is always important. So <laughs> I'm like Susan mentioned earlier, I like replacement cycles. So I think giving you a replacement cycle is the best way that we can give you a good amount of estrogen and really make sure that you have a good lining. I think short of that and what you're doing, I mean, there's so many things that are out of our control. You know, I wish we had that much control that we could say, you take this, this and this and you'll have a good lining. But unfortunately, there's not. But I think a replacement cycle would be my preference to really make sure that you have a good estrogen level and a good endometrial lining at the time of transfer. What do you think, Carrie? I agree. I tend to prefer programmed cycles. I think that you have three babies from prior IVF cycles, and that's a really good sign. I think that it's important to remember that there are things that you cannot control and that you're doing all of the right things. I mean, you are paying attention. You are doing what all of these professionals in your life are telling you to do. And so I think you're doing good. I think it's important to remember a couple of things. Number one, you've had multiple successes and that puts you in a good stead for another success. Number two, your doc's not going to transfer, particularly a last embryo, if your lining doesn't look great. And so if something happens, if they don't see one and you cancel, be okay with it. It's like, oh, okay, well, this is helping me get to a better result. And so fine. And the last thing is you're dealing with an embryo that is the last of the bunch. There's a reason it's the last of the bunch. They thought the other ones were better. And that's why they transfer them first. And that's why you have three small human beings in your life. And so this is a, an embryo that it was the last to be chosen. It's been rebiopsied. And so it may not be as strong as the other ones. And so that is no reflection on you or your doc. It's just kind of a reflection of the normal process that we go through. And so I think take a deep breath and give yourself some slack is probably the biggest thing that I would recommend. I agree. You know, we definitely want to make sure we have a nice smooth endometrium, make sure you have a saline ultrasound within the last, you know, six to 12 months, make sure your thyroid and your prolactin levels are where they need to be, but take a deep breath and positive juju. You got it. All right. Y'all want to do one more? Let's do one more. All right. Hi there. First of all, I'd like to thank you for doing your wonderful podcast. I've been struggling with infertility for the last three years and listening to your podcast has been a lifesaver for me. I am 39 years old, have suffered from recurrent pregnancy loss, five miscarriages, two from spontaneous pregnancy, three following IVF. I have a heart-shaped uterus, but no other abnormalities. My numbers are good. And my husband as well, he's 44. They've gone through four rounds of IVF, three resulted in pregnancy, but ultimately miscarried between weeks six and 11, which was the last one. They live in Germany and PGT is not a standard procedure. Therefore, we have until now no possibility to test our embryo prior to transfer. I have two questions. Is it still worth going for another round of IVF at my age without genetic testing? What are the chances to get pregnant considering my age? Or in other words, when should I start looking for alternatives? Is the anatomy of my uterus the main reason why I cannot stay pregnant? Thank you. And I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Warm wishes. I think no matter where you live or kind of what your background is or what your age is, at this point, I would recommend genetic testing because, you know, you've had these transfers and you've had miscarriages and there's certain genetic abnormalities where a pregnancy can implant and even we can see cardiac activity, but eventually the pregnancy stops due to genetic abnormalities. I'd be interested to know if they did genetics and she didn't mention this, but if they did genetics on the products of conception, because that might have given her some answers about the genetic issues. But if you're in a place where you can do it now, 39, I think it's even more valuable valuable and more important at 39, because if you have three or four embryos, if you're lucky enough to have that many and you test them and you know they're all abnormal, 
unfortunately, that's bad news, but that gives you your answer right there before you go through a transfer and a pregnancy and another miscarriage, et cetera. So I just think it really gives you very important, useful information. And I would definitely recommend that you probably need to do PGT if you can with the next IVF cycle. I would say that probably the biggest reason that I have patients from Germany is because it's the desire to do PGT because it's just not allowed there. And so I think that doing PGT will help you get to your goal faster and it will help you get some reasons as to why you have maybe had these miscarriages. I don't know that it's going to change the ultimate outcome because PGT will not change if those embryos are normal or not. It will just help you know they are not normal. And so you avoid transferring them and using that valuable time and emotional energy and help you go to the next decision. So Carrie, in Germany, is it illegal to do PGT or it's just not? It is not legal to do PGT. Yeah, they cannot, they cannot do it there. That's interesting. That's actually probably the driving reason for our German patients is because they want PGT for whatever reason and they just can't get it at home. After this many miscarriages and at this age, you're really at the point where most of us aren't, you know, sweating, seeing somebody who's in their upper 30s going through IVF. We're like, eh, you know, we can make this happen. But honestly, having that PGT result, I think would be a huge, huge, you know, influencer in having some decisions of what to do for the future. You know, you go through and you do an IVF cycle and all of your embryos are PGT normal and you're not getting pregnant, then that's going to definitely make people lean in a different therapeutic direction than if all of your embryos are chromosomally abnormal. And most of my recurrent pregnancy loss patients, when we do PGT, they have normal embryos. Not all of them are normal, but it is very unlikely to have all abnormal embryos if you have a normal karyotype. So I concur with my friends. All right. So to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. So hop on by and leave us a like or a follow and say hello. And you can also always visit us on fertility.suncensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Dog segment and also for episodes like we did today. So leave us an episode idea if you want to do that too. Um, Don't hold back. We'd love to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Today's podcast is also brought to you by California Cryobank. California Cryobank has 45 years of experience and a diverse selection of hundreds of highly screened sperm donors. They maintain the highest quality standards to give clients the best possible opportunity for a successful pregnancy with a client services team that supports you along the way. California Cryobank is offering Fertility Docs Uncensored listeners a special offer of a free level two subscription worth $145, which is a free 90-day subscription for access to extended donor profiles, including adult and childhood photos. Just use the code DOCS, that's D-O-C-S, at cryobank.com to find the right donor for you.